0: To teach you the depth of his word enjoy the study so we are going to study the book of revelation verse by verse and it's probably the most avoided book in the bible which is why we're going to tackle it first here (laughs) at new city and we're going to dive in deep uh, go verse by verse and see what the lord would have for us in the book that really, frankly, culminates all things in the Bible. And so we're going to go through a little bit of an introduction, and then we'll just go through chapter 1 today and see see from there. We'll try to take a chapter a week moving forward. Um, when we do chapters 2 and 3, we'll actually take one week. There's It's seven letters to seven churches. We'll do one of those letters each week, so we'll spend seven weeks in chapters 2 and 3 and then... Uh, from there forward, we'll try to do one chapter per week. So it's going to be great. It's going to be exciting. Um, it's the Revelation, so it's literally the unveiling of Jesus Christ, and we're embarking on probably the most incredible Bible study you could undertake. And it's really to answer the question: Who really is Jesus for all eternity? You know, who is He really? It's the unveiling of Jesus, our Savior, our Redeemer our king, and it's the only book of the Bible that culminates all things. And so, it really is a time of, it it is a book in which, if it's studied properly, it will take you into every other book of the Bible. And it's everything we have to look forward to in Jesus, which is one reason why it's such an exciting book to properly study. And so, Um, The entire book is about redemption You know, people have such a negative connotation with it That it's all this doom and gloom And and lots of judgments and things that that are crazy or happening But truthfully, the entire book is about redemption And it's everything that we have to look forward to in Jesus And it's probably the most avoided book in church today In the 404 verses of the book There are over 800 allusions to the Old Testament which is why it's so foreign to your, to your ear a lot of times when you open it to read it. Because you haven't studied the Old Testament properly. And it's one of the reasons why it can be a difficult book to read. Because it, it references back to every other book of the Bible. And the Old Testament closes with all of these unfulfilled promises. Uh, prophecies yet to come to pass. It closes with an eternal reign that we get to look forward to. And here in this book, everything that's promised in the Old Testament is fulfilled. Everything. So it's an incredible book for us as the church of everything we have to look forward to in Jesus. And so from all of this, it's probably the most misunderstood book in the Bible. The word revelation in the Greek literally is apocalypsis. And... It's from two different roots, and it literally means an uncovering or an unveiling of. And it's, it's think of it as letting you see something for what it really is. You are know, letting you see a disclosure of knowledge of something. And the book is literally the unveiling of Jesus Christ. You know, who is he really? Which is how this book opens, Revelation 1, 1 and 2. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Look at who gave this to Jesus. This is a gift, almost like a personal gift from the father To the Son. Look in verse, the opening verse, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the unveiling of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him. God gave it unto Jesus. And that might shock you, just the first, the opening passages of the Bible, but when you go back to Mark 13, 32, speaking of Jesus, he says, But of that day and that hour knoweth no man, know not the angels which are in heaven, neither the sun but the Father. And so at that time, there was something the Father had in his counsel that Jesus did not. And this book is him giving that to him, which is, is kind of crazy when you really think about it, but it's literally him explaining to the Son all of these things that are, come, that are to come to pass. So it's almost like a personal gift that we, are, that we get to enjoy, a gift from the Father to the Son, and it's all to us it's interesting that the world has such a negative connotation with the word apocalypse. You know, when you think about that word in culture, I mean, even as a kid growing up, you just immediately think of fire, brimstone, doom, gloom, judgment, all of these things, which we will see in the book later. But all the word literally means is to unveil. That's all it literally means is to unveil. See, the world is terrified about who is Jesus really? You know, who is he? The world is terrified that we have an accountability to him that created us. We are accountable to him. And if you come across people that really flee from Jesus, the root of the issue is they're fleeing accountability. They don't want to be accountable to be fallen and need a redeemer. That's the bottom line here. But it's just so interesting how the world has taken that word and twisted it into something that has an extremely negative connotation. Think of all the culture in the movies, right? The apocalypse, the the doom and gloom, the day after tomorrow, you know, all these things, these judgments and crazy things happening in the world, and yet it's just showing who is Jesus. He is the ultimate judge. He is the ultimate king. He is the ultimate savior. And he will rule and reign on this earth at one point. And we have an accountability to him. This is also the only book of the Bible that promises a blessing to anyone that reads it. In verse 3, blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. So blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy by going through this book you are getting a blessing it's the only book in the bible that god promises a blessing on those that read it and those that hear it and so we're going to claim that blessing over this group and the people that are going through this bible study with us and one of the reasons why it has a blessing on it is because it will take you literally into every other book of the bible if you study it correctly and so It's also the only book of the Bible that contains its own outline. So in Revelation 1 verse 19, write the things which thou hast seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. In the Greek, that word is meditata. It's hereafter, after these things. So you've got three groups, a supernatural outline. Chapter 1 is the things which thou hast seen. It's the glorified, ruling Jesus. That's what John had seen at that. by that point. He saw Jesus for really who he is being unveiled, the glorified Jesus ruling. The things which are, are the seven churches, chapters two and three, the church age, the things which are. And then chapters four, all the way to the end, are the things which shall be hereafter, after the church age. So you have these three separations in the book, the supernatural outline of The things which you saw glorify Jesus, the things which are the seven letters to the seven churches, the church age, which is us right now, and the things which will be after the church age. And chapter four, verse one starts uh, the rapture onward. So four things in this book will be corrected that are out of place all through the Bible that are themes. The church will be back. will be back in our rightful home, which is heaven. That's our eternal home. Israel will be back in its rightful home, the land that God promised it in Genesis. Jesus will be on his rightful throne, the throne of David. Remember, we reviewed that a couple weeks ago, that the throne that Gabriel promised yet again to Mary when she was before she was even pregnant. And it was a, a promise that Jesus gave, that God gave David by all the way back in 2 Samuel. But Jesus will be on his rightful throne. No longer at the right hand of the Father, but on earth on his throne. And all evil will be bound and ultimately in their rightful home, which is the lake of fire, forever, away from us. So the book is fully structured around the number seven. Uh, The number seven is what God does on behalf of man. It's always, think of it as, you know, some people think of it as the number of completion. It's literally the number of which God does on behalf of man. So... If you study things carefully in the Bible, seven is always what the Lord does on behalf of man. Jesus bled seven times in the Bible, for example, just as a reference. Uh, Sevens are all through the Bible. But specifically in this book, I do not think you could make a comprehensive list of the number seven. Uh, The very structure of the book is around seven groups of seven. There are seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets. Seven personages, seven vials or bowls, seven dooms, and seven new things. So there's seven groups of seven that the entire book itself is structured around. And in fact, uh, the entire book is full of sevens. This is not a complete list, but just to give you an idea of the supernatural nature of this book, there's seven candlesticks or lampstands, seven spirits, seven stars, seven lamps, seven title pairs, <clears throat> seven promises to the overcomer, seven horns, seven eyes, seven angels, seven thunders, seven thousand, seven heads, seven crowns, seven plagues, seven mountains, seven kings, seven years of judgment, seven IMs by Jesus, seven doxologies in heaven, and there's seven new things. So that's not even a comprehensive list, that's just a, a handful. There's a lot of subtle sevens all through the book. But what I want to get across to you is the idea of this supernaturally crafted book and how it's orchestrated that's deliberate by Jesus for us. And his fingerprints and the fingerprints of the Holy Spirit are literally all over it. So as we as we progress through the book, the praise even increases exponentially to seven times. You know, in chapter one, there's glory and dominion. In chapter four, there's glory, honor, and power. In chapter 5, there's blessings, honor, glory, and power. And in chapter 7, there's blessings, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might. And so even as you go through the book, it's it's continual praise of the Lord getting higher and higher and higher until almost like a crescendo at the seven. There's seven praises and worships. Holy, holy, holy in chapter 4. Uh, worthy art thou in chapter 4 and 5. Unto him that sitteth in chapter 5. There's a uh, salvation unto our God in chapter 7. Kingdoms of the world in chapter 11. Great and marvelous in chapter 15. And four hallelujahs in chapter 19. And it's interesting, even the being a multiple of seven is all throughout the Bible. There's four hallelujahs in this book. And if you read the rest of the Bible, there's 24 others elsewhere. So you put them together, it's 28. It's a multiple of seven, even just in that regard. So the entire Bible is just supernaturally orchestrated. Uh, Revelation is actually modeled after several Old Testament books, which is interesting when you think about it. But it's modeled after Exodus through seven elements. There's Jacob's trouble or affliction. Remember, the Israelites were afflicted. There's the cry to God being heard. Remember, Israel cried out to the Lord, and he heard their crying, and he Had Moses raise up to deliver them. God will command them to be released. You know, just like in Exodus, God commanded them to be released. In Revelation, he's commanding them to be released from the Antichrist. Um, There are two witnesses with miracles before the enemies. Okay, so remember Aaron and Moses? Well, we're going to see how God sends in two witnesses who do miracles before the enemy. The enemies also perform miracles. Remember, the Antichrist will come with all lines, signs, and wonders. We looked at that last week in the signs of Jesus' return. The enemies also perform those same miracles to an extent. There's judgments from God, and then God will protect his people. So even in Exodus, it's modeled. It's also modeled after Joshua by seven elements. Um, When you get to Joshua in the Hebrew, it's Yehoshua. It's a variant form of Yeshua, of Jesus. So you literally have the name of Jesus on an Old Testament book, which should make you pause for a minute and just think, wow, that should relate to our king somehow. And it does in a striking way. Yehoshua and Joshua and Jesus, Yehoshua and Yeshua, same names in the Hebrew. It's a variant form. Joshua is a military commander taking the land back from the invaders, just like we're going to see Jesus do in Revelation. He's taking the land back. From the invaders. There's a seven year, seven year campaign against seven nations out of an original ten. We're going to see that these, from Daniel. Remember, the ten horns rise up, three are put down. So there's seven left. Okay, same thing in Joshua. The Torah is totally ignored at Jericho. So in Joshua 5, you have Jesus with his sword drawn going to battle at Jericho. Remember, Joshua confronts him and asks him, Hey, are you for us or our enemy? And he calls himself the captain of the Lord's host. Take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. It's Jesus, a it pre-incarnate Jesus going forth. He's the one that fought the battle at Jericho. And when you look at that and you realize everything at Jericho ignored the Torah, right? They weren't supposed to work on the seventh day. But at Jericho, they did seven times as much. They were on the walls seven times. They blew trumpets and the walls fell down. the Levites led the procession into battle. They weren't supposed to go to war. So everything, see that's what Jesus does. He takes the, the Torah and just turns it totally upside down because he fulfilled every bit of it. Well, the same thing here in Revelation. There's two witnesses, seven trumpets. Okay, the enemies confederate under a leader in Jerusalem named Adonai Zedek, which literally means the Lord of Righteousness. Okay, so think of the antichrist as a false god he's a false lord right he everything he does everything satan does is a counterfeit and that's exactly what we have here in revelation as well okay they're ultimately defeated with hailstones from fire and fire from heaven and signs of the heavens and if you remember at the end of joshua the king's hide in caves pleading for the rocks to fall on them and we're going to see that exact same thing in uh, chapter six in chapter 6, the uh, king's hiding caves and ask, who can withstand the wrath of the lamb? And they just are crying for rocks to fall on them, which I've always found so interesting because instead of crying out to the Lord for salvation, they cry to be killed instead. And, and even still, they're fleeing accountability. It's that flee from accountability still. Um, everything that begins in Genesis ends in Revelation and I'm not going to go through this whole list, uh, mainly because I can't see it. <laughs> it's, a big list. it's a big list. But everything that begins in Genesis ends in Revelation. And um, actually, I can, let me pull it up here real fast, because this is important. Yeah, that's an important one. We need to get some depth on that. Yeah. Everything that begins in Genesis ends in Revelation. So if you remember, the earth is created, the earth passes away. The sun governs the day. There's no need of the sun in Revelation. Darkness is called night. There's no more night. Waters he called seas. There's no more sea. River for earth's blessing. And there's river for a new earth. Earth's government through Israel. And earth's judgment through Israel. Man in God's image. Man headed by Satan's image. The entrance of sin. The end of sin. The curse is announced. There's no more curse. Death enters, there's no more death. Man driven out of Eden, man's access to Eden is restored. The tree of life is guarded, and access to the tree is restored. Sorrow and suffer enter, there's no more sorrow. Babylon is founded by Nimrod, Babylon falls. God's flood destroys evil people, Satan's offspring, his seed. Satan's flood tries to destroy God's people, his offspring, Abraham's seed. There's a bow marking God's promise. If you remember after the flood of Noah, there's a bow, a covenant that the Lord established. We're going to see in chapter 6, the Antichrist uses that same bow as a false covenant. He comes with a false covenant to Israel. Okay, there's a bow for remembrance at the end also in Revelation. Uh, a bow marking his covenant, his covenant, a bow marking Satan's counterfeit covenant. Sodom and Egypt, corruption and judgment. Sodom and Egypt, as spiritual Jerusalem. There's a confederation versus Abraham's people in Genesis 14, a confederation versus Abraham's seed. That's all the way back in Revelation 12. A bride for Abraham's son, a bride for Abraham's seed. That's us, the church. We're the bride of Christ. (coughs) Marriage of the first Adam, marriage of the last Adam, which is Jesus. Man's dominion ceased and Satan's began. Satan's dominion ends and man's is restored. Enoch taken from earth before the judgment as a type of the church and the church taken from earth before the judgment in the rapture. We'll see that perishing once the flood begins perishing once the mark is taken. So everything that starts in the Bible culminates and climaxes at the end of this book, all of it. Okay, Revelation one, let's dive into the book and just go through this chapter. That's just a little background introduction of the book and the supernatural outline, the structure, how it's put together, uh, what we have to look forward to moving forward. So we're just going to read through chapter one, see what the Lord has for us in it. So chapter one, verse one, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him. talked about that as a gift from the father to the son to show unto his servants, whose servants, Jesus's servants. And in the Greek, that word is doulos. It literally means a bond slave. And when you think back to the Old Testament, a bond slave, what their practice was is if you were bought, if you were bought for a price and you were an indentured slave to a household, you served a term. And at the end of that term, you could choose to leave the household or you could choose to become what's known as a bond slave. And what they would do is they would pierce, they would go to the doorpost and they'd spike, take a spike and all and drive it through your ear and you would wear an earring to show that you are willingly choosing to indenture yourself for your life to the head of that household. That you would forever be a servant. It was an honorable thing. It wasn't like um, slaves like we think of them. It was a, it was a very high esteem For someone to make that pledge And become a forever indentured servant To that household And that's literally The the term was you became a bond slave And that's what this is written to To the bond slaves of Jesus Okay, so you Once you choose to serve Jesus You're choosing to forever indenture yourself To his household You can't leave and break that covenant You know, it's another picture of eternal salvation. You cannot lose your salvation. You are forever a bond slave to Jesus and serving him. Okay, things which must sor- shortly come to pass, and he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. Signified. He it literally is to render into signs. Okay, the whole book is filled with signs and signs and codes and all of these things that are explained somewhere else in the Bible. And that's the key. You are holding the key to the entire book is the rest of the Bible. And he signified it. He rendered it into signs. Okay, verse 2. Who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. And what I want you to understand is John did not get a vision. This wasn't a dream. He was taken forward in time. We're going to look at this in a minute. But he was taken in the spirit forward in time. And he sees everything that's going to come to pass. Okay, for which he saw. Now pay attention to in verse 2. The testimony of Jesus Christ. Well, what is the testimony of Jesus Christ? Well, you have to go forward in the book. But in Revelation 19, verse 10 For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So don't let anyone convince you that studying prophecy is hard to understand, you can't get it. It's literally the testimony of Jesus Christ. He is prophecy. And the enemy would love nothing more than to convince you that you shouldn't read it because you can't understand it. It's too difficult. You don't know what to make of it. You know, there's all these conflicting opinions. Well, I can tell you there's one opinion, and it's his, and that's all that matters. And it's the testimony of Jesus. So that's why this book is so important to study. Okay, verse 3. Here's the blessing. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. Okay, the time is near. All right, verse 4. John Let's talk about John for a minute. John, this is the the Apostle John, the one that wrote the Gospel of John, the one that that the Lord said, my beloved. He's the only disciple that God calls my beloved. Now, when you think about this pattern, it's established all the way back at Sodom and Gomorrah, where, remember, Jesus and the two angels come down and meet with Abraham, and Jesus says, is Abraham not my friend? Should we not tell him what we're about to do. And so you get this picture right there at Sodom and Gomorrah, the pattern of that Jesus loves to impart with his friends what he's about to do. Okay, when well you take that a step further, beyond just a friend being beloved, who was the beloved prophet in the Old Testament? Well, it's Daniel. Daniel's the beloved prophet. He's the one that gets the most Apocalyptic vision from the Lord, if I can say that, but the most knowledge revealed to him of what is to come to pass, and he's the beloved. We go forward to the New Testament, that same pattern holds. The beloved disciple John gets the greatest vision from the Lord on what is about to happen. And so it's the it's the connection between being a friend of God, and you can kind of think of it as a friend squared, a beloved of God. You know, it's that inner circle. And you think about John, all these major events through the New Testament that Jesus goes through, it's always an inner circle that goes a little bit further with him, Peter, James, and John. You know, the rising of Jairus' daughter. All the disciples went with him, but Peter, James, and John went further with him. Mount Transfiguration, there's Peter, James, and John with him. You know, all of these things, thats this inside group, this beloved. Okay, so John, to the seven churches which are also, which are in Asia, Okay, this is not the continent Asia. This is when Rome ruled the world. Think of it around 96 AD. There was a province called Asia Minor. It's modern day what we would think of as Turkey. Okay, and this, this letter, Revelation, it's to the seven churches in Turkey. Okay, there's, and we're gonna look at this on a map next week as we dive into chapter two, but these seven churches were literally on a mail route a Roman mail route of the order of which they would drop off. So think of it as Jesus wrote this entire book and it's almost like a cover letter to the churches. And there's some supernatural reasons as to why God picks these specific seven churches that we'll look at next week. And peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. The seven spirits, this is a reference back to Isaiah 11.2, there's seven spirits, the sevenfold nature of the Holy Spirit. Think of it as that, okay? Isaiah 11, 2, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. So there's seven spirits there that make up the Holy Spirit. Verse 5, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, And the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds. You know, what is it with Jesus and clouds? There are clouds all over the Bible. It was a pillar of cloud that led the children of Israel in the wilderness. Literally, it was him. Uh, he comes with, with clouds when he when he comes back and we are with him in Revelation 19. We meet him in the air, maybe in a cloud, in 1 Thessalonians 4 at the rapture. There's clouds all over the Bible. And every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. This will harken back to Zechariah. Uh, they shall look upon him whom they have pierced. Speaking of, of the nation Israel, Okay. And all kindreds of the earth shall well because of him. All kindreds of the earth. This will be a global event when Jesus comes back. And we talked about this last time in Amos, that it will be as the mourning of an only son. You know, just like as the Father mourned when he gave his only son, the world will mourn when that only son comes back. The earth shall well because of him. Even so, amen. I am Alpha and Omega. The beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. The Alpha and the Mega, the first and the last. It's the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. Um, In Hebrew, you can say the Aleph and the Tau. In our vernacular, you can say the A to the Z. But it's the first and the last. And this identity of Jesus being the first and the last is all over the Bible. Isaiah 41.4, 44.6, 48.12, Revelation 1.11. It's even repeated in this chapter two more times. Uh, Revelation 1.17 and 18, chapter 2, verse 8, and 22.13, the alpha and the mega, the beginning and the ending, the first and the last. Okay, verse 9. I, John, who also in your brother and companion in tribulation. Now, not the great tribulation. He's in... Tribulation and persecution, think of it, okay? He's our companion in that. And in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Okay, so John is exiled to the island of Patmos. And if you can see on the screen, the map, kind of down just off the coast of Turkey, is the Greek island known as Patmos. So you got Greece kind of wrapping around. Italy is further west. Across the uh, Aegean Sea from Greece is Turkey to the east. So there's where the seven churches are gonna be. It's over there. And kind of geographically, think of it as if you've ever been to Los Angeles and you look off the shore and you see Catalina Island, it's kind of about that far off the coast of Turkey. So it's, it's just off the shore. Patmos is there. The second picture is what the view looks like that on the island of Patmos. It, it looks gorgeous. It wouldn't be such a bad place to be exiled, maybe, especially if Jesus is there, is there with you. Uh, it could be pretty nice. But so John is there, and he's, and he's exiled. Basically, Rome could not get rid of this guy. The Holy Spirit was pouring through him. He was preaching. He was getting people saved. He was preaching prophecy. Okay, and and the Roman ruler basically took him and said, I don't know what to do with this guy. We're going to exile him. So he sent him to Patmos in exile, and Jesus meets him there on that island. So verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. Okay, the Lord's day. This is not Sunday. Sunday. Okay, this is not uh, the Sabbath is really Saturday, the sixth day or the seventh day of the week, uh, Sunday being the first day. But I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. He was literally John was taken in the spirit. And when you're sensitive to everything in the Old Testament, this period of time all through the Bible is known as the day of the Lord. So think about it as I was in the spirit on the day of the Lord. Okay, I was taken to that day. To the day of the Lord. And he heard behind him a great voice as of a trumpet. That voice is described as a trumpet in 1 Thessalonians 4. We looked at it last week in the rapture. He shall descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel with the sound of a trumpet. Okay, this trumpet, he hears this voice as of a trumpet. It's Jesus speaking. He doesn't have any way to describe it other than this booming, loud trumpet, this noise that was, I, I imagine him hearing the sound and just falling to his knees, okay? Verse 11, this is Jesus speaking now, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, there it is again, the first and the last, and what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamus." And unto Thyatira, and unto Sardes, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. Now, some of your translations may say lampstands, but it, it's think of it as seven pillars of fire, is what John is seeing surrounding Jesus. Okay? And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one unlike t- unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. So Jesus is wearing a breastplate, a golden breastplate. Okay, and he's in the midst of these seven lampstands. And we're going to see later in the chapter here in a minute that those lampstands represent the church. So Jesus is in front of the church and yet in the midst of it. He's he's in the middle of the church. He's in the middle of us right now. He's in the middle of the body of Christ everywhere. These seven lampstands are going to be important because they represent, again, seven being what God does for man, the church, what God does for man. It's a completion of the church. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. This is the ruling king. This is Jesus. He's not a suffering servant uh, walking around the shores of Galilee, humbling himself, washing our feet. He's ruling and reigning, and he shows up to reveal to John everything that's going to happen between now and him coming to rule and reign in Revelation 19. So, moving on to verse 15. And his feet, like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters. There's a lot of idioms here. Uh, the brass, you can go all the way back to Numbers 21. The brazen serpent. It was a serpent molded of brass. It could brass is the metal that can withstand fire, representing judgment. So his feet, literally meaning he can be the only one to walk through that judgment and withstand it, which he did for us. Okay, when he was crucified, he walked through that. He laid himself down, and he could withstand that. So all of these are all of these are idioms or codes. Think of it as if they burned in a furnace. That furnace being God's judgment, but He alone could walk through it. And His voice as the sound of many waters. That that's a harken back to Ezekiel. Uh, the voice of many waters. The voice is a rushing mighty wind. The voice as many waters. You know, think of it as a roaring sea. Have you ever? We stood on the ocean or stood on the shore and had a storm roll in and you see the sea just roaring and these waters tumbling about you and that sound is unmistakable. Verse 16, and he had in his right hand seven stars and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. That two-edged sword is this, it's the word of God. And we're gonna look at that uh, later on as we go into this study. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and morrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Okay, the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. Verse 17. Actually, we're going to see later in the book that he destroys all of his enemies solely by his word. It's also his word, this sharp, sharp two-edged sword that created the entire universe to begin with. It's that same word that holds it all together right now. We've talked a lot about that with uh, quantum physics and how they found that sound waves are literally holding together every atom in the universe right now. It's his voice. And there comes a day when he literally just lets go. Okay, and everything is First Peter at the end of the millennium. It all burns up and there's a new heaven and a new earth. Verse 17, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Can you imagine? You're you're in exile, you're praising God, and Jesus walks into the room. Wouldn't you have the same reaction of just falling as if you were dead? And Jesus coming over and laying his hand and saying, Fear not, fear not. You know, I'm with you. I've made a way for us to have fellowship and communion. And I'm here to reveal to you, my beloved, everything that's to come to pass. Okay. Verse 18. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. And we're going to see that at some point... Later on in the book, he casts hell and death forever into the lake of fire. It's gone. It's a literal, physical being that he casts out. Okay? He has the keys. These are keys of liberation, not keys of incarceration. It's a key to set you free from that, not a key to condemn you to that. Okay? Nobody... Nobody goes to hell because of Jesus didn't do something for them. They go because they don't appropriate what he did on their behalf. That's why they end up there. Okay? Write the things which thou hast seen. Here's that supernatural outline again. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. Verse 20, this closes chapter one, the mystery of the seven stars, which thou sawst in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands or candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven candlesticks, which thou sawst are the seven churches. So get the picture, the churches, the seven lampstands that represent the church are on earth with Jesus in chapter one. When we get to chapter 4, after the rapture happens, they are going to be in heaven with the Lord before everything that's crazy starts to happen. So it's a subtle hint, but again, it just confirms contextually all through the scripture that we're going to be in heaven before all of this happens. Okay, it's a promise. So every code written in Revelation is explained somewhere else in the Bible. Every one of them. Uh, Here you've got two that Jesus himself goes about to explain, which is awesome. But when you read chapter 1, there are 24 identifying characteristics of Jesus in this chapter. 24 characteristics of Jesus, which is an important number, and it's deliberate. Okay, let's go through those real quick. Him which is, him which was, him which is to come, the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead the prince of the kings of the earth, him that loved us, him that washed us from our sins in his own blood, Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, the Lord, the Almighty, the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, gird about the paps with a golden girdle, his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, his eyes were as a flame of fire, his feet like undefined brass, his voice is the sound of many waters, he had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. His countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. He that liveth and he that was dead. So you have 24 items that, that are cataloged in this chapter that represent Jesus. Okay, now when you look at these, I put in the slides and the notes for all of you, some of those characteristics harken back all through the Bible, okay? Okay. His eyes like a flame of fire, that's Hebrews 1, 4, 1 Corinthians 3, Malachi 3, the fine brass we talked about from Numbers 21, his voice is the sound of many waters, it's from Ezekiel 1, Daniel 10, His hand he had in his right hand seven stars, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, that's from Hebrews 4, Ephesians 6, Isaiah 49, John 12, Isaiah 11, 2 Thessalonians 2. His countenance as the sun shineth in his strength. That's the Mount Transfiguration in Matthew 17. Remember, he's transfigured into his glorified state right there in front of those disciples, and he has Moses and Elijah with him. Okay, and he that liveth and he that was dead. So you might ask yourself, why 24? You know, why would, what's so critical about the number 24? Well, what's interesting is that in scripture, the number 24 represents the church. And if you go back, you can only find 24 or one other place in the Bible. And it's when David organized the Levitical priesthood into 24 courses. Okay. But what's interesting is we're going to see in chapters four and five, this new group show up that are the 24 elders. And they're nowhere else in the Bible. And so you have three, four major visions of the throne room in the Bible. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and then Revelation 4 and 5. And there are a lot of similarities between those visions, but the Old Testament leaves out this group. The 24 elders, they're not there. But yet when you get to the New Testament, there they are. They show up. And they tell you they are kings and priests. Okay, well, we looked at that last week. We are kings and priests as the church. He's made us, according to Peter, a royal priesthood. Okay? In chapter 1, we just saw it. He's made us kings and priests. Okay? And there's three groups of people all through the Bible that are kings and priests. We talked about Melchizedek, who's a type of Jesus, Jesus himself, and us, the church. And so you've, you've got to come to terms with the fact that the 24 elders represent The completed church. That's who they are. And what's interesting is that there are 24 intervals in scripture that represent the church age. And it's so subtle, but it's just a hint, again, of the completed work in the Bible and how it's all intentional. These 24 little intervals of time that that are hidden from the Old Testament and revealed in the New, that is the church age. You've got uh, between the 69th and 70th week of Daniel, for example. There's an interval of time, a gap that represents the church. Uh, When Jesus came to read in the synagogue in... um, Let's look at just one of those to give you an idea of what we're talking about. It's in Luke 4... Okay, 18 and 20. I'm going to pull that up real quick. This This is really critical to get to know this. Okay, Luke 18. So Jesus is in the synagogue. Okay, he goes over and he grabs the book of Isaiah. And he opens it up to Isaiah 61. And he reads... The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is Luke four eighteen. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. In verse 20, he closed the book. And he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all of them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, this day is that scripture fulfilled in your ears. Now, when you go back to Isaiah and you look at chapter 61 and you look at where was Jesus reading? Well, he's reading in verses one through two. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And that's where he stopped. And he closes the book, and he sits down, and he says, This day is that scripture fulfilled in your ears. He did all of that. But when you read verse 2 in Isaiah 61, he stops at a comma. And he says the rest of the passages and the day of vengeance of our God, because it hasn't happened yet. Vengeance is his, declares the Lord, and God has placed all judgment to the son. See, he stops at that comma in between all of those things that he fulfilled and the day of vengeance of our God is a comma, and that little interval represents the church age. It's us, what we've known for almost 2000 years, not quite. Almost 2,000 years. And so what's fascinating is you can find that interval 24 times in Scripture. And so it's intentional. The Lord put it that way because it's the glory of him to conceal a thing and the honor of kings to search out a matter, Proverbs twenty five two. And so when you dig into the word of God and you dig out these treasures, man, it's the most exciting adventure you can ever go on. And so that concludes chapter one. Uh, we will... Be back next week, and let's just close in a word of prayer, and uh, we'll wrap up. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for this time together. God, thank you for teaching us all things. Lord, we thank you that we just get a picture in chapter one of who you really are, the unveiling of who is Jesus. Who will he be for all eternity? God, he will be a ruling king, our savior, a righteous judge that will sit in Jerusalem for a thousand years and then for eternity afterward with us in the new Jerusalem, the founding of New City Church. And God, we thank you for that eternal promise that we get to look forward to. And Lord, we just pray that you bless the families as we depart from this place. If there's anyone that has a need, God, for healing, if we have any family members that are sick, any family members that are suffering, any friends, any loved ones, anyone in our circle, God, we just pray that You would step in and and as the great physician, you would heal them and lay your healing hands upon them and comfort them. Lord, that scripture is fulfilled in Isaiah 61 to comfort the sick, to bind up the brokenhearted. And Lord, we thank you that you set us free. You purchased us and we have the opportunity to give ourselves to you for all eternity as a doulos, as a bond slave to you as an honor to serve your household. And God, I just pray that in the 10 Commandments, you say thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain. God, I pray that anyone within the sound of this message this morning, that they would be truly an ambassador for you, that they would not take your name in vain, that they would not take your name and squander it, that they would not take your name and bury it and do nothing with it, but that Lord, they would walk in the full authority that you've placed in us by the Holy Spirit dwelling us and that we would go out and serve you in this community, in this world and to build disciples and to help further that new city that you're preparing for us right now from John 14. God, we love you. We praise your name. We thank you again for this time together. Be with us the rest of this weekend, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.